Hi, I'm Matt Higgins. I'm Head of Affiliates at iProspects and I'm joined today by Rob Davidson. Rob, why don't you introduce yourself? So I work at Awin as the content analyst there, which is working for their global strategy team. And I am responsible for producing a lot of the white papers and research that comes out of the affiliate network there, based on a lot of our kind of data and insights that we track with our various partners. Cool. So uh, thanks for coming in, Rob. Great to have you with us today. We actually started talking about this conversation a few weeks back, I think it was in June, at the Affiliate Code, uh, which was an event hosted by Awin uh, in London. I think you made the rather bold claim that affiliate marketing can save the internet. Yeah, I'd agree. It probably was a bit of a bold claim. And I deliberately kind of uh, wanted to put out a provocative statement, I guess, around the role that affiliate marketing can play as far as the internet's concerned. And I think given all the various controversies and issues that are currently in the headlines around digital advertising and the use of the kind of like internet and wider data privacy and things like that, that there's um, something to be said for affiliate marketing. And I wanted to really make the case for why that particular model was really valuable, I think, and, and could serve a purpose in terms of uh, keeping the internet a kind of free and open space for everyone. Yeah, I think uh, as well, it was a fantastic presentation, caught my attention. And I understand you've actually turned this into a white paper. Yeah, so we published it a couple of days ago now. So if any of the listeners are keen to kind of hear more about that and read more about it, then... That white paper is available on AWIN's Market Insights Hub, which you can find on the AWIN site, and you can download that from the white paper section there for free. I think before we actually really get into the nitty-gritty, it's probably worth explaining what affiliate marketing is. I've got a little challenge for you, Rob, if you're up for it. Yes, always up for a challenge. Perfect. So Einstein said, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. So in the simplest way possible, and a question I'm sure you've been asked numerous times, what is affiliate marketing? So in this particular analogy, you're going to be the, playing the role of the six-year-old, correct? Uh, yes. Okay, always. great. Thanks, man. Um, so I basically, I use this analogy in the talk itself, and I wanted to really kind of get across a simple analogy for how affiliate marketing works. And this was something I actually used for my original interview um, when I joined AWIN um, years ago now. And this was something that I felt was really kind of quite useful in terms of visualizing the actual consumer journey in terms of um, online marketing and affiliate marketing specifically. So in that, there were four key kind of elements. When you look at affiliate marketing, you have the user who is sitting on the publisher website and the network then tracks them um, from that publisher website over to the advertiser site uh, where they then kind of make that transaction and the commission is then awarded. And so I was trying to think about uh, what kind of scenario sums that relationship best up. And I thought that honeybees were a really good uh, means of visualizing that. So essentially I had the honeybee, which is played by the role of the network, and they're tracking the user, who are the nectar on the flowers, the flowers being the publisher website. I don't know if you're following this still with me. Oh, yeah. Six-year-old man. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay, great. So... Um, you then have the um, nectar, which is the user moving over to the advertiser side, which would be the hive via the bees. So the bees are taking that consumer over to the hive, where it's then converted into honey in this particular case. So that's where the sale actually occurs. And I guess if you were going to extend that analogy to the role of like an agency, for instance, then you could arguably say that they play the role of a beekeeper, kind of overseeing the whole kind of process and facilitating that general process itself. Does that make sense? To me, yeah. okay, great. To, to <laughs> me, great. yeah, 100%. That's, I suppose, that's actually quite a poignant uh, analogy considering bees have the potential to 
to save the planet and we're talking about how affiliates can, can save the internet. So back to, I suppose, the original question, how can affiliate marketing save the internet? That was the title of your, your talk. You started the presentation, though, taking it right back to the conception of the internet. Yeah, that's right. So I really wanted to kind of give some context to talking about a lot of the controversies and issues that we're currently kind of finding ourselves entangled in at the moment. And I think that the seeds of those issues have been sown right from the very origins of the internet itself. So if you were to kind of go back to its origins and um, look at where it came from, where it was first kind of invented, then that's very much out of the military origin, which was to do with the Cold War and the US responding to the launch of Sputnik in uh, the Soviet Union. And this is kind of around 1957. And um, it was developed by an agency of the government called ARPA, which was the Advanced Research Projects Agency. So they created this kind of rudimentary early version of the internet called ARPANET. And that was later kind of taken up by a lot of academic institutions. So in universities across the state started to use this kind of central network of, kind of communication to distribute academic proposals, theses, research papers. And they found that it was a far quicker and greater means of distributing that information than anything they'd previously had. And that's kind of, I think, where that initial impulse behind the appetite for the internet kind of later came. From there, I suppose it it grew and then it became a transactional kind of entity which we all know. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's various kind of stories and interpretations around where the first online e-commerce transaction actually took place. One of my favourites, though, I think, was to do with when, I think it was in 1994, potentially, and um, there's a website called CD Now, and they essentially sold the very first CD online, which was a CD by Sting. I think it's called Ten Summers Tales or something like that. Not a CD that I personally own, I have to say, but apparently that was the very first item bought online. That's kind of ironic, I think, given the fact that in later years we subsequently saw what the internet did to the music industry and the sale of CDs as kind of music became just kind of streamable. Essentially, you look at the giants of like Spotify and iTunes right now. I think that kind of links on a little bit to the, the sort of freedom of access and you reference actually throughout the white paper and throughout the presentation a report from Mary Meeker. And there was a particular example which you gave, which was citing, I think, Wikipedia versus Encyclopedia Britannica. Yes. So, I mean, that's quite a famous example, I think, about the impact of the internet on certain traditional business models. So, I guess when you look at something like um, the Encyclopedia Britannica, that business model was essentially based on printing up kind of like a, a compendium of knowledge and information and then selling that off in a physical format to consumers who wanted to access it. And when something like Wikipedia suddenly came along and made that same format completely open source, opened it up to everybody who was interested and they were able to access that information for free, it just completely removed any kind of commercial kind of income that they were, uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica was ever likely to kind of make out of that type of sale. Did that lead on to anything around advertising and kind of venture capital? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think it's quite interesting the way that advertising has kind of influenced the formation of the internet over the years. So, obviously, if that kind of information that somewhere like the Encyclopedia Britannica is suddenly being undercut by a platform like Wikipedia, and suddenly all this information is available virtually for free for users who, if they have access to internet, they can access that information those ad dollars, those kind of like investment in those platforms has to come from somewhere. So that's where kind of online advertising, I really think, 
starts to kick in and uh, take on a really valuable role in funding the development of the internet. And there's a series of essays that I was reading in the run-up to the conference and that inform some of the stuff that we talk about in the white paper. And that's by a guy called Rick Webb, who's like a tech entrepreneur, and he has a series of essays called Which Half is Wasted? I definitely would urge people to check out if they can, because a really interesting take on kind of the development of the internet and the role that ad dollars have really played in its investment and development. And so he talks about this idea that whilst venture capitalists have kind of routinely been applauded for funding the development of the web, actually it's ad dollars that have done it for like the last 10 odd years, I think. And the ad investment has played this massively important fundamental role in making the internet kind of uh, more accessible to more people around the world and kind of improving the general infrastructure of what it looks like. That was a really interesting point. I think as marketers, we should be acknowledging the impact that we've had in kind of digital and developing digital indirectly with our actions of how we promote advertising and how we've been able to keep the, the online world sort of accessible and free. There were three key points I think you pulled out in the presentation from this. Yeah, so I kind of wanted to talk about the the way that um, that investment has really influenced the form that the internet has taken. And so I came up with these three kind of statements that I felt explained the current predicament that we find ourselves in right now. So the first was that advertising subsidisation of the internet has established an unrealistic level of expectation from its users regarding access to content and services that they would have otherwise paid for. The second is that the speed and scale at which the internet has grown has meant that universal standards around regulation and measurement have struggled to really keep pace and have become increasingly fragmented. And then the third and final one was that the pressure to deliver a tangible return on advertiser investment has led to an increasingly sophisticated and complicated online ad industry that seeks to justify that vast amount of ad spend. I think the, the third point for me is particularly prominent. I think you're, you're right. There is pressure in the online advertising industry as a whole to deliver that tangible return on the investment. And I think we've kind of grown up within this uh, section of the market that's become extremely trackable, particularly down to kind of an individual level, an individual transaction, an individual click. Being able to take users, for example, from a banner ad all the way through to a final conversion gives a very high level of expectation of performance and uh, and accountability comes along with that. I don't think all models are built as securely as a CPA model, which is what Affiliates is, is built on. But kind of let's touch a little bit on the sort of the darker side of advertising, I suppose, and that's that's kind of fraud. And you showed one really interesting statistic from a Pixelate report that in some countries, and Japan being the worst, we see quite a large amount of ad fraud. Yeah, there was a particular graph that I concluded within the talk, and that talks about the share of desktop ad impressions that were fraudulent in selected countries. Uh, Looking at kind of last year, I think there were some stats that they had related to that. And like you say, Japan was a real kind of outlier in that regard. And I think it amounted to around about 80% or something that they were, like saying were fraudulent ads, which just seems insane to me. Now, by comparison, obviously, when we're talking about our own markets here in the UK, it's a far, far smaller amount in comparison and it was kind of like marginal by comparison to that Japanese market. But in terms of the actual spend that you could argue is being wasted in that regard on like fraudulent ads, um, it amounted to still a fairly sizable chunk of around about £750 million if you took the kind of latest studies that we've had from the IAD. And I think the the spend in the affiliate kind of industry itself had an overall ad spend of 
I think it was 554 million, according to the latest IAVPWC ad spend report. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I guess if you take that 554 million pound figure, it's still almost like 200 million pounds less than is arguably being wasted on fraudulent ads in that particular uh, format. I mean, without kind of digging into this too deeply, I mean, we can do a whole podcast here on uh, viewability and ad methods in the industry. And But I think what we're trying to really explain here is that the affiliate industry provides a much truer performance model. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. I mean, that's kind of what the affiliate model has always kind of been built upon. It's this really robust performance channel. And always talked about the fact that the results that you drive through the affiliate channel are real world results. You know, you're talking about whether it's leads or whether it's actual sales, they're, they're tangible things that you can really relate back to activity that has um, been undertaken by your affiliate partners. I mean, when you talk about something as traditional within the affiliate channel as the, the validations period, so something like that is a really good example of just how robust the model can actually be. In this particular instance, you might want to take the the travel industry as a good example of this, actually. So I used to be the travel specialist at AWIN, and prior to that, I was a travel affiliate. So I was working for a small travel website. And we would have scenarios where we had generated sales for a hotel brand, for example, but that booking from a customer, which we had seen kind of uh, the transaction take place, um, clicked through from our website, then transacted on the hotel website. But because obviously that booking doesn't take place maybe for up to maybe 12 months in advance of uh, you know, when they're actually taking their trip to the, whichever city it is, um, we wouldn't receive the commission for that particular sale right until that hotel stay has occurred. So I mean, that's a long kind of duration, a uh, long period of time for a publisher to wait for their income stream. And arguably that needs to kind of evolve and change and make things easier for publishers. But on the other hand, when you're talking about kind of uh, some of the issues that you know, we've just touched upon, in terms of fraudulent ads, in terms of wasted ad spend, I don't think that you can really come up with a more robust process for uh, making sure that the results that you glean from digital activity are bearing out in terms of true performance. And, uh, and that's something that I think is key to affiliates. Yeah, so I think there's, there's slightly more security in the affiliate channel in terms of you know, you're only paying for sales which are valid and meet the requirements of a particular brand yeah um, so you very much have control over that exactly and i think it seems we've actually seen a lot more interest from your kind of your traditionally offline publishers sort of starting to enter the affiliate spaces as, as advertisers and publishers the magazine and editorial giants seem to be kind of adopting this it's some social platforms i think i read a couple of weeks ago that Snapchat has a reporting like visual product identifier in their in their code, which might link to Amazon, which could capitalise on an affiliate model. So there was um, a very interesting fact I think you outlined in your presentation from a report I think from the Select Committee on Communications from this like traditional sort of media. Yeah, so I think the, it was the House of Lords that released a report uh, earlier this year, which looked into kind of the digital ad industry, and within that report they talked about. The diminishing returns that traditional publishing houses, particularly online journalists and online newspapers, which have famously suffered a kind of corrosive impact of digital advertising over the years. And they were talking about the fact that even though their reach is still huge, you know, a lot of these big news websites have still got tons and tons of visitors visiting their websites, consuming their content, which is obviously, you know, having to be produced, having to be subsidised by those publishers. 
And there was something like a disparity between like 75% of the UK population that were visiting these websites and con- consuming news via these websites. But actually, they were only receiving around about 4% of their revenue via digital, re- uh, digital streams. So uh, there's a massive disparity there. And I think that that's another consequence of the internet that we found over the last 10, 20 years, you know, that really um, is something that needs to be improved upon. Do you think part of that shift for some of the traditional media giants using affiliate marketing as a publisher is because there's less friction in the affiliate chain? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, in terms of definitely the mediation, I think that can kind of go on between kind of publisher partners and their kind of advertiser partners. You know, there's been a huge construction of this massive ad tech industry, obviously, that mediates a lot of that dynamic between those two parties that want to work together. And, you know, with good reason, because a lot of it has to be justified, a lot of it has to be reported on, and there's all sorts of kind of analytics that goes on in between those different partners. But I think that it's reached a huge extent now, and I think that affiliate marketing serves as a great counterpoint to that, because the model essentially, like we said earlier with the B analogy, there's very few partners that need to be involved in that particular relationship, and therefore we can kind of bring the important kind of parties that are involved much closer together, and they have a far kind of more direct relationship. What about the subscription model, which we see kind of pop up on, on various websites, you know, Netflix as an example. Mm. How do you think that's kind of impacting the online world and how we actually consume? Yeah, well, that's something that also Mary Meeker's Internet Trends Report kind of touches upon. And she talks about the rise of the subscription model and the fact that a lot of publishers, a lot of businesses now are turning to alternative monetization streams because they're obviously finding that online advertising isn't quite bringing in the money that it used to, maybe in more traditional formats. And so they're having to kind of be creative around the ways in which they can drive that revenue. And subscription models are one of the ways that they're doing it. And I think that that works for certain partners, particularly those that have already got an established kind of brand of their own. So they're able to rely upon a loyal audience that are buying into, you know, a certain kind of uh, service. So like you said, with Netflix or perhaps Spotify or you know, if you um, are accessing The Guardian or The Financial Times or something like that, you might be willing to pay for that service. I think that that's more difficult if you're just starting out for the first time, so if you're quite a niche website or if you're a small startup. And essentially, I think that it also, those subscription models are also going against maybe one of the primary first impulses of the popularity of the internet, which was around this kind of free and open access, you know, paywalls are kind of, they are exactly that, they are walls, aren't they? They're preventing people from accessing content that they would have gotten used to doing over the last 20, 30 years. So almost actually these publishers can start to make, you know, online advertising work in the sense of maybe like you through an affiliate model, we could potentially see some of these paywalls starting to come down. Yeah, potentially. I think that's kind of part of what I wanted to get across in the, in the talk itself actually is that affiliate marketing can definitely provide a solution in that regard. So it can still allow publishers to keep their content free and it can try to kind of draw in as much traffic from as many different kind of demographics and all sorts of different types of people while still being able to commercially keep them viable. They've still got some income coming through there. So I think it kind of strikes a good balance in that regard. I think another, uh, another point for me is that you know, data has been a buzzword for as long as I can remember in, in my career, whether that's big data or personal data. It's clearly been at the heart of online and, and online advertising especially. What's kind of the value exchange there? How, how do like you as Eamon as a network, how do you use that data? Yeah, well, I mean, that's um, something that I think is also quite useful as far as the affiliate model is concerned. I and mean, when you're talking about a pure play affiliate network like AWIN, 
the, the data that we actually track is fairly minimal. Um, you're talking about uh, maybe like a, an IP address, which is hashed and truncated anyway through the tracking. Potentially, you might be looking at order IDs for certain kind of programs that we have. Then if they're also using something like the cross-device facility that we offer to our brand partners, there's also a kind of hashed email address that kind of might be used there. So when you're looking at those key kind of elements, you can see that it's pretty basic. Data minimization is something that's kind of a core principle that is kind of built into that system. And I think in this current climate, that's a, a real positive thing. I think that's actually pretty much all we've got time for on this occasion. I'm sure we could talk about this for, for hours and hours. <laughs> but I know it's a, a bit of a bold claim, but I think we've, we've tried to touch on a few of the, the common problems uh, with the online world and how the affiliate model is able to and also is working to solve them. So um, uh, thanks, Rob. We appreciate you uh, taking out the time today to come and chat to us. Um, I'll let you get back to the hive. I'll buzz off. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. And as kind of mentioned at the start, Rob and uh, the rest of the team at AWIN have released a white paper, which you can access from the AWIN website under their market insights and then go onto their white papers and you can feel free to, to click through and grab a, a digital copy. Thanks for listening.